We're in the series called What's Next? And it's a question that's, that's just a logical jump at the beginning of the year. What's next for me? What's next for my job? What's next for my relationships? What's next for my career? What's next for my mortgage? What's next for all these different things? Generally, in any aspect of life, we're starting to ask the question, what's next? Maybe we're scared of asking the question because we don't really like our options if we think about what's next for us. We look at maybe retirement or going away to college or doing all these things. Let's just put off what's next because I don't want to deal with those issues, right? So we really want to kind of center in on these next, we have four more weeks of this series of what is next for us. Today, centered around this thought, what's next doesn't have to be what was. What's next doesn't have to be what was. We're followed by your future isn't your past. And so much of us get caught up in what happened to us or what we did or the mistakes that we made that we fully can't be present in our now or even expect anything in our future because we continue to let the past define us. It's like we're living a rerun. Last week, the youngest Clampett passed away. Did you know this? Ellie May, right? Am I getting that right? Ellie May passed away. She was 81 years old. How many of us didn't know she got older than 26? <laughs> right? She's frozen at 26 for all of time because we watch on Nick at Night. You know, we watch Jed and all the rest of them. Grandma. You know, we're granny. Uh, so we watch them do their thing. And Ellie May is 26 years old, dadgummit. She is not 81. And if all we did was stay in reruns, that's what happens. And I, I joke about that. I don't mean to make light of uh, this, this woman's life or anything like that. But we tend to think this way. We, we get stuck in a rerun where things have to be the same way in the same age at the same time. Anybody go back to visit a, maybe you came back here, you moved back here after being gone and, and kids that were four when you left were now 17. And you're like, what, what happened? What, what? No, you can't be driving. You're still four years old, right? We, I get that. I go back to one of uh, my parents' churches, and I go back and like, no, 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 Jared, no, 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 no. You can't have your own church. You're still five years old, causing all kinds of problems. I mean, never mind. Wouldn't be. We get stuck in the past. What's next doesn't have to be what was. For some of us, our reruns aren't as fun to revisit as the Beverly Hillbillies. Our past keeps playing in our head, and it actually acts as chains to drag us down. Maybe the decisions that we made and the mistakes that we had or the stuff that we had no control over that happened to us binds our hearts, binds our souls, and keeps us wrapped in chains. One of the great promises of Jesus, one of the great things of Christianity is this. It's wrapped up in Psalm 103, verse 12. He has removed our sins far from us, as far as the east is from the west. 
When we become Christians, when we give our life to God, it's basically this. We are trading our past and saying, here is my clunker of all the stuff and the junk. God takes it, gives us a new life, and then takes our old one, wraps it up in a ball, and chucks it. That is what this whole thing is about. That's what God's forgiveness looks like. Maybe man's forgiveness is like, oh, I forgive you, but I'm still going to hold it over your head every five seconds. God's forgiveness doesn't work that way. He forgives you, and by that, he chucks it. Now, I'm not so sure, sure, but if you are omnipotent, all-powerful God, you can throw your past pretty far. It is as far as the east is from the west. Some of you right now go, but Jared, the world's a circle, so if I keep on going, I'll find it. Okay, be that way if you want to be that way. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, we might know that, we might have heard that, but living that out is totally different. Our response to this truth is pivotal to how we step into what's next. Our response to this is pivotal. It's important. It is vital to how do we respond to what's next. Do we either go looking for our past or do we step into the future with God? I'll be honest with you. A lot of us ask for forgiveness. We ask God to take something from us. And then the very next day, we go off looking for the junk he just threw. And our mind is, is wrapped up. And how do we go find that? That's how I define myself. That's how I know myself as this, as that, as wounded this way, as going through this. And we go and we search and we look and we search and we, we're hiding under things. And we still let our junk from our past determine our present and our future. And God has to be looking at us. You asked me to throw it. I threw it. Why are you going looking for it? I had a huge scar on my arm. Not huge. Huge is the wrong term. Every scar is huge when it's your scar, right? Okay, so I had, I had a, a good-sized scar on my arm. I was kind of proud of it. It was fun to show off. It's three inches wide. Is that decent to everybody? Is that okay? All right. I received my war wound by battling as a short-order cook at Jamie's Soda Fountain. I was a professional jerk as my first job. Soda jerk. You guys were like, was he ever hired for anything better in his whole entire life? I was just, but I moved to short order cook, and uh, I'm, I'm cooking, and I'm doing probably tuna mill on the, on, we had a, a sandwich kind of griddle thing, it popped down, and it was always kept at 350 degrees, so it's hot, and somebody walks behind me and bumps me, and my arm is griddle-fied instead of the sandwich. Instantly, just, ah! I was happy about that bump, it was, I'm was not doing the most Christian of things at the moment when that happened. But so I had this instant blister. I mean, it was just gross. I had to cover it in gauze for like weeks. And you had this whole this, this scar that developed after this blister was gone. And so whenever we talk about meet another, if you've worked in food service, everyone should work in retail and food service once. 
They should, everyone should, should wait, wait tables once, and everyone should uh, have to fold clothes after somebody else messed them up once. And then you become a different con- consumer. Right? So not, I'm not going to wish Christmas season on anyone, but just to do it in July. Nobody's there anyway, so it's okay. Um, and so whenever I talk to another food service person, veteran, we like compare you know, where we stuck our finger in the fryer and things like that, because that happens. Uh, you guys are like, I'm never eating out again, ever. Uh, so... But so I went, I was telling this story. I don't know when it was, it was probably a year or two ago. I was telling this story and I was like, yeah, yeah, I got on the arm and there's this big like triangle scar and I roll up my sleeve to show and it's gone. I'm like the story misses something when your scar's gone, right? You can't, I can't, I can't tell that story. I got to take it out of my repertoire because no one believes me. Oh, sure. You got a scar. Where Paul's like, oh yeah, I got McDonald's here and 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 all these different places. But you have different scars. Excuse me. Got too animated, knocked my microphone off my face. But you have all these different scars. I can't tell that story anymore. It's not, a, it's not relevant to anything because I don't have anything to show me from it. And I tell that, that, that's, that silly, silly story because of this. Some of you have gotten your scars removed. That's what Jesus has done in your life. And yet we still tell the story of, see this war wound? I don't have that wound anymore. Jesus paid for that. See this scar? I don't, I don't have that anymore. Oh, wait. Oh, man, I can't tell any stories. I don't have to wallow back in my blister of, a, of Jamie's soda fountain war wound because that is healed and it is gone. In our lives, in our stuff, sometimes we keep on trying to live back in the past, telling stories of scars that aren't even there anymore. We will have new issues. We'll have plenty of new issues, right? You don't have to keep on reliving the old issues. We will have new issues. We'll have new problems. But if we don't disengage with the old, we're not able to deal with the new effectively. And in war, armies deal with this all the time. Armies always fight the last war. And whoever continues to do that more, the longest, loses. Okay? If you go back to the Civil War... People are not ready for the cannons and the weapons that are being used, and so they fought like they did 50 years ago, and people started to die lots of times. World War I, same thing happens. They start fighting like they did in the Civil War. This will work. Except they failed to account for the machine gun. 100,000 people died in one battle in World War I, right? Because of machine guns. Keep on walking towards me, right? Pretty easy. People mowed, literally mowed down. Because they were fighting the old battle. If we still fight the old battles we face, the new ones will overwhelm you. If you get stuck and preoccupied by the old battles, the old wounds, the new stuff in life is just going to bowl you over because you can't take it. You've all been there, right? That, that time, that, that snapping moment in life. Maybe it's just something silly your kids do, but you just can't do it. The milk spilled. The temper goes. Why? Because you're late on the mortgage. You just got fired. All these other things. It was just, but the spilled milk is what really caused the problem. You can't deal effectively with the new wound because you're still stuck in the old. Jesus takes that old stuff. That's what the cross does. Wads it up in a ball. Throws it as far as the east is from the left. West. Dealing with the new and stepping into the new sometimes is scary. 
causes a little anxiety because I don't know the new. I know the old. I know my old. I have a script, Jared, that I go by. I can be offended by this. I can, I can take, uh, you know, <clears throat> I can be, uh, take exception to this and this and this. And these are where, this is my role. This is the script of my life. This is how I do everything. I just, I just step in here and I know what to say. I know how to act. I know when to, you know, how to frown on my face. I know when to, you know, get snippy with so-and-so. I know when to kick the dog. I have my script. If I, if I get over that, I don't know what's new for my life. That's the beauty in it. God asks, says, hey, are you ready for what's next? Are you ready for something new? Because I've got better for you than this. Before we can actually answer or even ask the question for ourselves, what's next? We have to leave what was. That's important. In no way, shape, or form am I speaking in marriages on this. I've had people, I've, I've, I've spoken on how we have to get rid of our past. And people are like, oh, thank you for telling me I can divorce my wife. That is not what I'm saying. Just, I'm not making light of that. that is, don't please, that's not what I'm saying. Okay? Um, so, outside of marriage. Before we ask uh, what's next for ourselves, we have to leave what was. We're studying Saul and Jonathan and David. We're going to spend some more time on Saul today. He is one of the bigger screw-ups of the Bible. He is one of those, and he's a big screw-up in the Bible because he has all this potential. He has all this potential. He is God's anointed to be king, and he just kind of wastes it away. And it is just a, it's just a sad story. You get mad at him when you read Samuel. You're like, what are you doing? But to be honest with ourselves, we probably kind of relate a lot more to Saul than we do David. David does, finds, figures it out and does everything right. He screws up one time, and we're like, oh, well, David screwed up one time. Saul daily messes up, messes up, messes up. He has all this potential and just keeps on doing the wrong thing. And you know what? As I study this, I identify with him. I'm like, hmm, this could, you know, David's a fair-haired child. I'm like, Saul. First Samuel 15 This is the story that does it. This is the story immediately after this, David is anointed king. Samuel's like, I'm done. This guy, he's he's dead to me. You're fired. Whatever you want to say. And he is going on here. We are, uh, this is the story that changes that, that removes him. Last week was bad enough. This week is just like icing on the cake. Okay. Uh, 1 Samuel 15. Then Saul, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites. We're going to talk about them a little bit more. They're very important. I know sometimes we kind of, if you're reading the Bible, and you're like, you got this big word. I don't know who these people are, what's going on. Amalekites is one of those that you need to study because they're important. <clears throat> Moving on. Then Saul attacked Amalekites all the way from Havela to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agog, king of Amalekites, alive, and all of his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and lambs and everything that was good. These... They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything they, that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. <clears throat> then the word, of the, Lord came, word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul's gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. 
But Samuel said, What is that bleeding of sheep in my ears? It's the lowing of cattle that I hear. And Saul answered, the, Lord, uh, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So what has happened, the Amalekites are under something in the Bible called a ban. Now, I want to be uh, warfare, in ancient warfare, there's two kinds of warfare for the Israelites. The Israelites actually in numbers, I believe it is, are given how to treat enemy combatants, women, livestock, all of it. They have the nicest way of treating enemies until basically the Geneva Convention. Okay? They, are, they treat them well, comparatively, unless they're under something called the ban. Now, the ban means total destruction. God has a reason why he wants these people utterly removed, even their chickens. Okay? We're not, we're, you don't save anything. You don't take their gold. You don't touch anything. I don't want it. We don't need it. The ban is total destruction. Does that make sense? There's two different kinds there. So sometimes people are allowed to take, you know, uh, sheep and sometimes they're not in the scripture and you're like, what is going on? Well, usually when they talk about, they fought all kinds of different wars and those were normal wars. But when they, the wars that usually make the scripture are ban wars, which are total wars. Why is God so miffed at the Amalekites? Glad you asked. It's a great question, Tom. <laughs> so we, they, uh, they so miffed at the Amalekites because the, whenever there is treachery or cowardice involved from Exodus 17 on, it's the Amalekites' fault. Okay? The Philistines are the normal uh, enemies. They're just kind of like your normal, we, we, we fight you. The Amalekites are the special kind of jerk faces. That's a technical biblical term right there. Um, but they are nasty people. What makes them so nasty? Glad you asked again. Here in Exodus, I think 16 or 17, there's this thing that happens. The, the Israelites are marching across Sinai. They're doing their thing. The vanguard, Joshua with the army, is in the front clearing any bandits, anything else away. So all the men and all the fighting guys are in the front. The Amalekites wait in caves until the whole progression goes past. Then they come out and start slaughtering the elderly and the children and the weak. And just, just the, the devastation must have been tremendous. It was just a, an onslaught of bloodshed until Joshua could get his men and fight his way through. Can you imagine if you're going through a canyon, you've got a million people standing there and you're like, I got to get my 10,000 people through. It'd be like going the wrong way when Wrigley Field lets out, right? It's just like, ah, and then there's panic coming this way because the Amalekites. You understand that what's happening there? He probably would have had to almost fight his own people to get to the bad guys so he could stop this, uh, this, this onslaught and this bloodshed. God is not happy with the Amalekites. Who they attack? The elderly, the weak, the infirmed, the children just slaughtered them. And so from then on, the Amalekites have a special ban on them. Whenever you come across them, you destroy them utterly. No mercy, no quarter, no prisoners. Don't even take their chickens. Does that make sense? That's why we do, or why, uh, why there's a ban on them. <clears throat> well, Jared, that was an exodus. We're talking Samuel. Yeah, I know. It's been for 500 years, these Amalekites have been causing problems for them. 
For 500 years, they've caused issues. For 500 years, they've reared up their head and, uh, and caused issues for the Israelite people. Some of us in our own personal life feel like our issues and our problems have been going on for 500 years. Amen? Saul is tasked with the opportunity to once and for all get rid of the Amalekites. This is his job. God's like, all right, Saul, I created you a king. You are going to go do this. You're going you're to take care of business. It says he raised 200,000 troops for this mission. 200, that would have been like every man in Israel. This is the opportunity. They're going to go crush the Amalekites. Instead, what does he do? He saves their king, which probably means kind of his household too, so more people than that, and he saves the best of their sheep and cattle. Now, he tries to pawn it off. Oh, I was going to sacrifice that to, to God. That's what I was going to do. It's not like that was worth any money or anything. He misses his opportunity. He refuses to follow in God's plan in this. He falls victim to the past. In a paradox, by being overly sensitive of ourself, we sabotage our future. And Saul does this. By being overly concerned with yourself, you sabotage your future. You think that the more I would be concerned with myself, I just got to work on myself. Got to work on me. Got to get my things together. The more, the more I, I work on myself, the better off I would be, right? But paradoxically, the more you get self-centered, the worse off you are. The more you sabotage your own future. Saul does this. Saul fails because he wants to look good in front of others. He has all of the men of Israel with him. And so here is, how is he going to pay for them? It's probably the question he's asking. Well, if I steal all their sheep and I steal all their cattle, I can pay them off in sheep and cattle. He doesn't, there's not a treasury of, is, of Israel. Israel's been a country all of like four years at this time, right? There's not a tax system that's built up. There's not a, they can't go ask China for a loan. There is nothing they can do here. So he's going to pay, he's scared of what these armed men are going to do. And so he's paying them off with sheep and with cattle. Saul fails because he wants to keep the funds for himself. When he takes Agog and ransoms him back to a family or somebody else, he would take the ransom money. Pretty nice little paycheck for himself. That's what's really going on here. Saul fails because he does not trust in what God has asked of him. Now, it's easy for me to blame Saul or to look down on Saul, but if I'm honest with myself... I'm truly honest with myself. I fail because of these same things in my life. We fail when what others think outweighs what God thinks. We fail when what others think outweighs what God thinks. We obsess what over what God think or what other people think. It dictates the choices that we make. It dictates what we buy, what we purchase, where we live. We obsess over it, unfortunately. Hopefully you don't. Hopefully you're saying, no, that's not me. Well, let's just think about it. How do others perceive you as inform how you dress and what you eat and where you hang out and who you talk to, what music you listen to? I used to fall victim to this a lot in college. Uh, from my 
battle with the low self-esteem was junior high through, through college. A really, really difficult battle. Difficult. Uh, the big past issue, I guess, of, for Jared Hauser was the self-esteem stuff. And it was so bad. With I had great friends in college. Amazing guys. God had, I know my mom had prayed for these guys my whole life. And they were amazing men of God in my life at this time. And I still, even though they never spoke anything bad to me, never said anything, I mean, just other than stupid 21-year-old guy humor, but they were, they were not mean. They were not venomous. They were, they were just good guys. And I would still, I remember coming out of the dorm room and like stepping to the side and still listening to see if they're like, man, I'm glad that jerk's gone. Because that's what I was expecting to hear. I was expecting them to be like, oh, that guy's such a loser. Why don't he leave? Why do we have to keep on inviting him around? I was expecting, that was the, the story that was playing in my head. And so we went to, uh, this continued until, uh, and they never said anything, by the way, but uh, I just had that story playing in my own head. And this continued until I was uh, on spring break with them. And I remember, and we were on the way back from Florida to Indiana, and I said, you know, guys, and we were accountability, we were, we were great Christian brothers, and I said, you know, I told them what I did. I told them that I stand outside the room to listen to what they were going to say after I left. And when my, my probably my less, least eloquent friend, but uh, he, he was driving my mom's bank minivan. We borrowed it for the, we're, you know, seven college guys going to, going to Florida for spring break in a beige minivan. Oh, yeah. Talk about sabotaging yourself, right? <laughs> it was, it was, no, it probably wasn't. Uh, and so... Anywho, uh, we were there, and, and he's, he just looked at me, and he was like, dude, we love you. Stop it. And that was all that was said. Nobody else said anything in the car. I went, oh. 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 I had the rest of the drive to think about that. Dude, we love you. Stop it. That was the voice of wisdom in my life that actually started to break the chains of self-esteem issues that I'd had since I was in sixth grade. Dude, we love you. Stop it. So somebody in here right now, dude, we love you. Stop it. Maybe that's what you need to hear. If you're here and you can hear my voice, we love you. Stop it. I know that's like, I've tried to stop it. I know. I hear you. I dealt with it for a decade. I got it. We obsess over it, and it's time to break free from that. We fail when our self outranks God. This is what Saul does, right, when he's preparing the, takes the uh, king captive. Thinking of ourself outranks whatever God thinks. I want the wants of my life to align with what God wants. The, the hopes and the future for my life needs to be in concordance in line with what God wants for me. How do I figure that out? It is by getting into the scripture, getting into the word, praying excessively to get to know what his heartbeat is. When our hearts can start to match his heart is the only way in which that happens. Because I can have some great ideas for the Hauser family, but if they're without God, they're going to fail. They might make me money. They might give me fame. They might do all these things. But if they're not in line with the heartbeat of God, they're not going to give me a hope in a future. But Jared, I don't understand the Bible when I read it. That's okay. I don't understand the refrigerator manual when I read it. My refrigerator still works, does it not? 
I don't understand the Bible. I, I get that. That's why we have to study it. And study it some more. And read it some more. But I don't want to. I understand that as well. But I want to hope in a future that's better for me. So I got to keep on coming back to it. The only, only time you read the refrigerator manual is when something breaks, isn't it? I was pretty proud of myself the other day. I read the refrigerator manual and fixed the ice maker by myself. I didn't even have to call Paul. <laughs> that's a pretty big moment for me. My wife in here would be like, amen if she was here. I call it phoning a friend. <laughs> but I read, the, I read the manual, but what did I read when the ice maker was doing growling at me? I was like, oh, I probably should read something about that. And too often, that's the only time we consult the book, right? That's the only time. This is God's love letter to us on how, on so many issues and so many things in life. How do we deal with this stuff? We only read it and we're like, oh, I can't find that one sentence to deal with that one problem. And so if someone calls me or you get google it or you, do, you look it up because you're like, oh, i gotta, I got to find that one sentence. I'll tell you what, guys, the whole thing is for those issues. Not just one verse or one sentence. That's when we get into trouble. The more we read it, the more we know it, the more we read it in context, the more you understand it. The confusing parts get less confusing because you can go, oh, I know it happens here and this happens here and how those work together. You've got to know the heartbeat of God. And he's given it to us right here. We don't have to wonder anymore. If you can't read well, you can listen to the audio version. There's so, we have, are, are just blessed with so many ways to get into the scripture. We fail when we trust ourselves more than God. I like relying on myself. I'm an only child. I don't think I got spoiled. I know I didn't get spoiled. We had no money. I got spoiled with like time spent with me. I did have an amazing relationship with my parents. Still do have an amazing relationship with my parents. But I, I mean, it wasn't like, oh, you can have anything you want. I didn't even ask for things. I knew that's not going to happen. We got to pay for doctor bills. So that's what happens and it's okay. Um, better for it. But one, one of the things, the traits of only childness that pops out to me is, and I think I get this from my mother too, and it's kind of awkward she's sitting in front of me because I was, I was thinking she was in the back today so I could talk about her more, but um, <laughs> is, is it's the I do it myself mentality. And my mom, if you ever met her, if there's one woman, woman sh- who should ask for help, it's probably her, but she's like, ah, I do it myself. And I get the same way from, from her and from being an only child. I don't have to rely on anybody else. I don't have a sibling I can ask or even play with. I'll just kind of make it up all in my head. And we'll, we'll do that. I'll do, do it all by myself. And that, I mean, I even oriented my sports. Even when I played on a team sports, I put myself in the positions that I only had to rely on myself. I became a pitcher, became a catcher. I didn't have to worry about anybody else. I got to be involved in every play. You know, it became a very, I didn't realize that until later. I was drawn to swimming. I swam. Why? Because you don't have to rely on anybody. It's just you with your head underwater swimming. You don't even have to talk to anybody. In fact, if you try to talk to somebody, you drown. (laughs) We fail when we start trusting ourselves more than God. It's the struggle of asking, Lord, am I doing this because I want to or because you want me to? And I have to be patient enough and self-reflective enough to listen for the answer. What's next doesn't have to be what was. What's next doesn't have to be what was. 
In Hebrews 8, verse 12, it says, God will redeem your future. God will redeem your future. The verse says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Amen? I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So this whole baseball wrapping it up. And so when you come to him, God, I need you to take care of this issue. He's like, I forgot about that already. I forgot that past. It's not there anymore. Why are we bringing this back up? I threw it. It's gone. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That means it's actually gone. The God of the universe can forget about it. The one who created us can forget about it. We got to let ourselves let it go. Don't break out into Frozen. (laughs) Maybe that was for myself and not for you, but that's okay. Let it go. Many of us can't believe it. We cannot come to grips with the fact that God actually wants a better life for us. That our past, no matter how bad or nasty or goofy it was, can actually be forgotten and forgiven. That's what God does. It's as is the cross, Jesus at the cross, takes our junky 1994 LeSabre with rust all over the place and gives us a Cadillac. He says, no, 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 it's okay. it doesn't seem like a fair trade. It doesn't seem fair at all. He says, God, you're getting all the junk. Yeah, I know, I want that. That's what I do. And he gives us something better. Sorry, if I was driving around a, a Cadillac, I wouldn't be going, oh, I really want that 1994 LeSabre again. I miss those rust stains. I miss how I had to jump it off every time I stopped the car. You don't think that? You're like, oh, this is awesome. If you're like my grandpa, you'd wax the back seat so his five-year-old grandson would slide back and forth. (laughs) That didn't happen to me or anything. (laughs) Does this mean it's easy? Absolutely not. It's not low-hanging fruit. It's hard work. This is stuff that's at the top of the tree. These cookies are on the top shelf, right? But this is what it's about, getting over that, coming to grips with our, that God actually has a future and a hope for us that's better than what we're dealing with. That he actually says, you can have victory over your past. That you can step over it. He offers us a way to let the the hooks and temptations of our past out. Some of us have been fighting the same battle for years, and it's time to stop. We've been fighting the last war when that war's already been won. The Israelites are doing the same thing. They're fighting a war that they've been fighting for 500 years. And in that moment, in that time period, when they can say, this can all be over, they fail because they think about themselves and what they want more than what God has called them to. You can have victory over it. I know. When I was in sixth grade, I made myself throw up so I didn't have to go to school. Not once, but every day. And then I got it so 
I'd wait until 10 o'clock because mom told me I was going to fail sixth grade if I didn't go to school. So at 10 o'clock, it counts as a half day at school. And we had a bathroom break between English and reading. And so I'd go in the bathroom and make myself puke. Because you immediately get to go home. Because I couldn't stand, I couldn't deal with, I couldn't come to grips with the people around me and the mean sixth graders, honestly. I couldn't deal with how they... This is not a plan of action, kids, of how to get out of school. I couldn't deal with being judged by them. I couldn't deal with what they thought of me. No one ever said anything mean. I never got in any fights in sixth grade. I never, you know, nothing was going on. But I consciously tried to get myself out of that situation because I couldn't stand being there. I was so wrapped up in what other people thought of me. It never even crossed my mind that I'd be known as the kid who puked at school. (laughs) I was so desperate to get out of there. And it was not until a Christian brother of mine, Josh Chastain, looked at me and said, Dude, we love you. Stop it. That the chains of all that self-doubt started to break. Now I'm a guy who stands up in front of 100 people with them all judging me all morning long. (laughs) Jesus has a future for you. He has a plan for you. He has victory for you. A victory that says my past doesn't matter. It's my future that's important. Today, there's a lot of us that have been carrying baggage for years. And it's time to drop it. It's time to leave it. It's time to quit searching for the stuff that that God's already forgiven you of years and years ago, but you continue your journey looking for that same wound and that same hurt. That wound, that scar, it's not there anymore. God took care of it. And he offers that to you today. A victory over doubt, a victory over anxiety, a victory over a past. This new year means new chances and a new day. God offers us a new life through the cross. Jesus comes and says, listen, I'll take your past. I'll take your junk and I'm going to give you something new. I'll take the sin. I'll take the mess. I'll take all the, the stinky stuff of your life and I want to give you something new. That's what the cross is about. So today as we pray, if you want to release some of this junk and this stuff in your life, if you want to give it to God, maybe for the first time you just say, I want to, I want to drop all this stuff at Jesus' feet. I don't want to go back to it. I don't want to return to it anymore. Ben, come on up. I don't want to pick this stuff up anymore. I just want you, as we pray, just extend your hands like you're dropping something. Because we've been holding on to it. We've been cradling it for far too long. This posture is not the posture of someone who's giving away their junk. But I just want to throw it down. I want to mimic... I want to mimic the, when I come home and my kids are all excited to see me and I just throw my coat down, that I just get to run in their arms. This is the same thing. Bowen will throw any toy he has in his hand. It doesn't matter if it's his prized possession. He will throw it to run in his daddy's arms. Today we get to replicate that. Whatever we have, maybe we've been holding on to it. And we don't call it our prized possession, but those wounds and those hurts and that stuff, we've been gripping tighter than we would a fistful of diamonds. 
Well, in this moment, I just want you to open your hands and drop this junk. God, will you take it? God, will you uh, heal these wounds? Will you take this stuff? Will you, will you forget about it? God, you are a God who, who takes our things and takes our past and takes our wounds and you heal them. You take our heartache and you make us full. God, you have a hope for a plan and a future for us. God, in this moment, can I, can I trust you to have more for me? God, I'm tired of fighting old battles. I'm tired of losing old wars. Jesus, will you take my life and make it yours? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.